we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is the universe next door. Hello, and thank you for joining us on The Universe Next Door. Today we are going to hear from Dr. Craig Keener. Uh, We get into a number of topics. Basically, the idea is that he's a Bible commentator. Um, He's written a number of books. So I wanted to talk to him about some of the most interesting things in the New Testament, things that you know people like us may not even notice and may just skip over, uh, some of the weirdest things in the New Testament, some of the we get into demonic influence, we get into the weird passage in First Peter 3 and, and Revelation and just all over the place. We were all over the New Testament. Uh, so I'm super excited for this. And Dr. Keener was a, he's just a wonderful guy, very humble guy. Uh, you can tell that he just loves the Lord so much and I'm so grateful for his work. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did because I enjoyed every second of it. Uh, and before we get into that, if you would just hit follow wherever you're listening from, that would alert you of every new episode. And don't forget that our Q&A is going to be released this Friday night at 5 p.m. And so uh, send in your questions ahead of time. Send them to information at apologetics.org. Don't wait. Just do that right now. If you have a question, just send it in. We'd love to answer it. Uh, And I'm super excited for that. So that's going to be this Friday night. And we also have some other super exciting things coming up on the Universe Next Door. We're going to have Gary Habermas. Uh, give us some instruction and insight on how to defend the resurrection and be confident in defending it. That's going to be around Easter time. And then we're also going to be featuring Scott Stripling, who's a biblical archaeologist, but he's not just any biblical archaeologist. He's the guy behind the discovery of the curse tablet. And for those of you who may not know, it was all over the news for a little while, uh, and I can't release too much information, but it's about to be all over the news again. And this might be the oldest inscription of the name Yahweh ever discovered a few hundred years earlier than the oldest one that they had previously found. So um, that's just going to be a huge deal, and it's going to be an incredible incredible time. So we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up. So I am just super pumped about everything that's going on. Uh, So just don't forget to hit follow so you see all this stuff right when it comes out. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for those of you who give to support this ministry. Of course, that's the only way it would be possible. So um, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that, supporting us through giving, supporting us through prayer, and supporting us through listening and sharing episodes. Uh, There are so many ways to be involved in what's happening here and And we have some really cool stuff heating up at the C.S. Lewis Society. So I'm glad you're along for the ride. Hopefully we can all praise and glorify God together uh, and be confident in understanding and defending his word and his gospel, the only gospel that has the power to save. So with that being said, let's get into our interview with Dr. Craig Keener. Craig Keener is professor of the New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. He is a well-known author whose books include the IVP Bible Background Commentary and his two-volume work on miracles, in addition to many others. And we are very excited to have Dr. Keener here on The Universe Next Door with us today. Craig, we're excited to have you with us today. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you, Nick. And where are you again? I, I teach at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. 
Oh yeah, that's right. As everyone's talking about Asbury for the last <laughs> couple months or so here. Yeah. Um, so what are you currently working on? Right now I'm working on a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. And like the four-volume Acts commentary I did, this one is going to be very detailed. So it's taking me a very long time. Yeah, I would imagine. I, I you know, for those of us listening who haven't written commentaries, they're just they're huge, they're intimidating, there's there's so much detail involved in them. Uh what what are you focusing on or what are you learning with all the study of Mark that you've been doing? Mm-hmm. Mark is, is a master of subtlety. You know, just like you have uh, chapter 4 of Mark that's parables, uh, subtle riddles people are supposed to try to figure out. Mark's whole gospel is shaped that way. <laughs> you know, it, it invites questions. So, for example, the, the first half of Mark, people are asking, who is Jesus? Peter finally gets it in 829, and then... Jesus goes on to explain, okay, now you got that. Here's the second part you got to get. I'm going to go suffer and die. And so the second half of, of Mark is helping them understand that Jesus is the Christ. Yes, he's the Christ who's going to suffer, not what they expected. So it's, um, it fits, you know, Peter's perspective because the, the, um, I believe that Mark is recording Peter's uh, memoirs, in a sense, or at least a lot of the gospel is that. Uh, that's what was said by by Papias, writing in the early 2nd century. And it fits when you look at Mark from, from the inside, you know, it's most of the narrative up until Peter runs off uh, after he denies Jesus, most of the narrative are scenes where Peter is present and that that climax in the middle actually is where Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. So his eyes are open to that. But then for the rest of his eyes being opened, you get the rest of the gospel. Yeah. And even, uh, I mean, up to the point of the resurrection, he doubted, he denied Jesus. He was hiding at the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, and, and he just seems like sort of an impulsive guy, which I can identify with. Um, and he was probably also a younger guy. Yes. Yeah. Most disciples back then were teenagers, and Peter may have been maybe in his early 20s or late teens. It was because he's married. Uh, he's he's probably older than a lot of the other disciples. But hey, if anybody is, is in your teens and you're listening, or if you're a youth minister or something and you're, you're listening, most of Jesus' disciples were teenagers. And when you when you read the stories, they kind of act like many of us acted when we were teenagers too. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely. I, I am a youth minister, actually, youth minister, young adult minister. There's no difference <laughs> between teenagers, people who are twenties or thirties. Um, so that is encouraging to know that God will use young people. Timothy was another. I don't know how young he was, but Paul had to encourage him. <laughs> for he was probably discouraged from people looking down on him because of his age. So it's interesting. Uh, what God chooses to do with people. Uh, now, you've also, uh, one of my favorite things you've written, as I mentioned in the, the intro, is the IVP Bible background commentary. Um, and so you've written on every passage in the New Testament and more. Uh, you, you must have just spent countless thousands of hours diving into this stuff, studying this stuff. What do you think is, 
or are some of the most difficult passages or what have you wrestled with the most writing your commentaries? What, what did you have the hardest time with? Revelation, people sometimes think Revelation is going to be the hardest, but actually when you get the background, Revelation is, I think, one of the easier works in the New Testament to understand. But there, there are a number of, of passages that are really debated and Oh, what, one of the one of the um, debates in Acts is talking about receiving the Spirit, and so mm. you've got like the Reformed interpretation and the um, Holiness Pentecostal interpretation, and actually, I think both of them are well. I think both of them are right. They're just looking at different passages <laughs> um, and different different. Uh, parts of, of the way Acts is, is being articulated. So the way that I put it together, I think is right, but it's it's clearly open to debate because we've got the, the the evidence is like much wider than than uh, than just one way of looking at it, it seems. Yeah, and it seems like there there are a lot of passages that different camps will have so many different views and sometimes they're not as different as they think but sometimes they are uh and and one of those is obviously revelation and and i did want to ask you this because for the common listener especially somebody who's a newer believer and even those who aren't a lot of people just don't even look at the book of revelation because they'll hear all of these uh, theological terms like premillennial dispensationalism or amillennialism or uh, post-tribulational or mid-tribulation. There's just all of these terms that they've never heard, and it seems like, well, I have to have a PhD to understand that stuff. Um, so what insights do you have uh, for, for basically anybody picking up a Bible to read the book of Revelation, especially with so much symbolism and uh, so many things when you, when you look at the, uh, uh, the, the footnotes for different passages in the Bible, they're just filling the whole side of the page. Uh, so what insights do you have for somebody who maybe isn't too familiar with the book of Revelation? Sure. I, uh, what, what you mentioned about people avoiding the book of Revelation, when I was a young Christian, I'd just been converted from a completely non-Christian background, and I was I was reading through the epistles, and I was like eager to get to the book of Revelation. And I got to the book of Revelation, and I was like, oh, I don't understand this. <laughs> so what helped me later, actually, well, reading through it in Greek really helped me. I'm not saying everybody needs to do that. That helped me, though, to slow down and pay attention to the transitions in the book. But Reading it as a whole and seeing how it fits together is is very important. Keeping in mind that there is a lot of symbolism in the Book of Revelation. Some people don't, you know, they they want to say, okay, no, you can't take anything symbolically. But everybody takes some of it symbolically. I mean, you've got the woman clothed with the sun. On average, we're like ninety three million miles from the sun. But you know, if we were just twice as close, say, if we were on Venus, we'd be burnt or crisp. So, I mean, nobody takes that literally. Or Mystery Babylon the Great in Revelation 17, you know, mother of prostitutes. It's not like every time you meet a prostitute, you say, oh, I read about your mom in the Bible. You know, we we, we just don't take <laughs> that literally. Revelation 120, talking about the, the seven lampstands, explains what the seven lampstands and the seven stars mean. That, that Revelation explains it indicates that it's 
it's symbolic. Uh, th- these are symbols. That's why it's explained. Even, even Revelation 1.1 uses the verb semino, uh, which can just mean to communicate something, but it often means to communicate in symbols, which fits the, the noun cognate um, semeon, which is used later in the book of Revelation for like the great red dragon and the woman clothed the sun and and so forth. Um, So everybody acknowledges that some of it is symbolic. A lot of the symbolism is taken from the Old Testament. Some of it's taken from the the culture of the time as well. Sometimes it's reapplied. Like it's not, it doesn't always mean exactly the same thing that it means in the Old Testament. So you've got the the plagues, the, um, the trumpet and the bowl judgments. They, they, resemble a lot of the plagues on Egypt earlier, uh, except there's sets of seven instead of instead of ten. Mm-hmm. But the the sores, the uh the sun darkened, the uh well the frogs maybe, <laughs> but certainly the water turned to blood and and the fiery hail and, and so forth. So it's not just giving you a history lesson about what happened in Egypt. It's reapplying it in a new way to judgments in the world so that uh, Revelation 11, I think it's verse 8, speaks of, of judgment on Sodom, Egypt, and where our Lord was crucified. Geographically, Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem, and then Babylon in the, in the larger context of Revelation, they're not all geographically in the same location, but they all recall places under judgment. And so uh, there's there's a lot of um, a lot of things like that you can pick up on. But then especially noting how things fit together in the book of Revelation. So you've got this contrast, for example, between Babylon, depicted as a prostitute, mm-hmm. and New Jerusalem depicted as a bride. On ancient coins, cities were depicted as women, and you also have that in the in the Old Testament. So um, you've got the, the city of this age, Babylon, and the city of the age to come, New Jerusalem, and only those who are willing to live in faithful holiness before God, only those who have faith for God's promise for the future, are going to keep themselves to be the bride of Christ rather than sleeping with the prostitute. Now, while we're on the topic of Revelation, what is your view on the mark of the beast? Because it seems like everybody has a thing. It's like some people think it's a vaccine or a barcode or a, or a chip in your cell phone or a chip in your hand. And and I think a lot of the time, regardless of the detail, people end up sort of missing the point, which is be obedient to Christ. Um, it, so what is, what is your view on the mark of the beast? As a mostly bald man, I say it's that hair that you have combed over your forehead. <laughs> no. um, yeah, there's so many different views, and through history, there have been different views. Mm-hmm. But one thing we can note by comparing it with other passages in Revelation is how it functions, because in 3.12, it speaks of um, God, God's promise that his servants will have the name of God and of the New Jerusalem written on them. There'll be pillars in the temple of God, and pillars back then often had inscriptions. Uh, chapter 7 and also 14, you have the 144,000 
who have the name of God and of the Lamb. Um, in uh, actually the end of the passage about the mark of the beast, that's 13, 16 to 18. Again, no chapter breaks in the original. You, you, you go right into chapter 14, where you have the 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. And you also have uh, Babylon having a name written on her forehead in 17, I think around verse 5, and Jesus having a name written on him in chapter 19, and the righteous having uh, the name of God on them in chapter 22. So there's a contrast. You're going to take one or the other. You're either going to have the name of God written on you, the name of God and of the Lamb, or you're going to have the name of the beast, the, the lamb being contrasted with the beast, the worldly power. And I think that's probably the major point, so that it's relevant to every generation. You know, whatever. I, now, if somebody wants to stamp something on my forehead, I don't think I'm going to let them do that. Um, but but the I think the spiritual point is something that's been relevant to every generation since Revelation was written. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, it is interesting to think about how much has changed uh, in the last 2,000 years and h- how many people thought Christ was coming back in their generation and just just what people would have h- held on to for encouragement and, and so on and so forth. Um, now, this this next question I wanted to ask you, I mean, most of these questions can probably be found or answered with Revelation, but uh, aside from Revelation, what do you think is the most misunderstood passage in the Bible, or in the New Testament specifically. Of course, you're a professor, so you've spent a lot of time with uh, with newer students, with veteran students. What do you think is one of the most misunderstood passages you've come across? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, about being baptized for the dead, certainly falls into that category. Now, what, what view do you take on that? Do you think that um, Paul is being sarcastic? Of course, you know, Mormons, for example, have sort of taken this and run with it. Um, but what, what view do you hold on that passage? Well, when I say I hold of you, it's just a matter of the best of a bunch of bad guesses. Um, mm. my, um, <laughs> so it's a, you, you try your best to figure it out, but what you sometimes come up with is still less than 50% probable. It's just more probable than any of the other guesses. But in that case, I'm thinking he, it may be a roundabout way of saying be baptized in light of the fact that the person's going to die. And therefore, you know, they need to be ready to to meet the Lord. Maybe second to that is the ancient practice of washing bodies before burial, in which case he may be um, he, he may be um, playing with them a little bit in that wording. But the, these are just guesses. Yeah, it's funny because at first I thought you said the best. The best guess, and then I realized you said the best of bad guesses. <laughs> so it's pretty funny where it's just kind of, it's kind of left to, um, to speculation. And there's so many things in the Bible where, like in Hebrews, when he's he's giving us all these interesting insights to the Old Testament, and then he's like, "Well, I can't write about this anymore because you're immature." And you're like, "No, just tell us a few more things." <laughs> or the, the same thing at the end of John, if, if you know all the books in the world couldn't contain it, it's like, just could you write one more? Could you write a few more stories and? Uh, but it, we just weren't there. The, there's passages where we're just left having to guess and having to sort of just make the best speculation we can. Second Thessalonians two two five, Paul is talking about the man of lawlessness taking a seat in the temple, mm. and then in, in two five he says, and, "And and you know when I was with you, I told you these things." 
And it's like, Paul, <laughs> we don't know. Tell us. <laughs> yeah, how inconsiderate. He didn't think anyone else would ever read the letter. The letter. But no. but some of the things he probably told them in person would not have been safe for him to put in a letter, uh, given you know the state of the Roman Empire and 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 so on. Uh, Rome did not like people predicting new kings. And actually, Acts 17.7 says that when Paul was in Thessalonica teaching the new believers, his critics accused him of preaching another king, one Jesus, which, according to Roman law, was sedition and could get a person executed. Mm -hmm. So he has to probably be discreet in how he puts things. Yeah, well, Herod certainly didn't like the new king stuff. Uh, and then also, like uh, Gematria, for example, 666, is that something that I've heard they did? To, it's it's intentionally cryptic so that they couldn't come just knock on your door and, and say, you're calling me the beast, you're, you're done. Uh, would, they, they would, would they use that to sort of keep things, keep things uh, uh, hidden, for lack of a better term, or disguised? That may well be, um, and, you know, that people who were in on the secret knew, knew what it meant. Probably the most common scholarly view about 666 or 666. Uh, there, there are all sorts of interesting numerical things about the, the number two, but probably the most common scholarly approach to 666 is that if you spell Nero Caesar in Hebrew letters, and then you turn those letters into numerals, because in Hebrew and in Greek, letters also functioned as numerals, and then you add up the total, Nero Caesar comes up to 666. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, and, and there are, of course, other leaders throughout history that, that but then it kind of can turn into pick your language and, and you know, get 66 for Hitler or for, you know, who, pick your guy. But uh, obviously Nero is an interesting one and, and extremely relevant to the actual context. Um, In the Armenian language to to this day, Nero is the Armenian word for Antichrist. Yeah. Wow. They, they had some that. early experience with that. Yeah. And there's actually uh, some of the manuscripts of Revelation, instead of having 666, a, a few of them have 616, which fits the other way to spell Nero Caesar in Hebrew letters. Wow. It's like people knew the answer to the riddle and then recalculated it, and <laughs> but they, yeah. they were spelling it differently. That's really interesting. Now, speaking of, of calculating, um, and I actually, I think I saw this on the flap in your, in your commentary, and it made me say, oh, that's interesting. Uh, why did you think the apostles wanted to keep uh, 12 specifically after Judas had, uh, had died? And, and do you think that the apostles were wrong for selecting Matthias and should have waited for Paul as the apostle, or do you think it's just there's 13? <laughs> no. Um, um, first of all, Jesus said that they would sit on 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. So the numbers taken from the, the number of the tribes, uh, Jesus, well, actually the Dead Sea Scrolls have this too, where they had a group of 12 leaders symbolizing the 12 tribes. And, and the idea was, you know, we're the nucleus of the renewal of Israel. And so, you know, setting things up, getting things ready for the restoration of God's people Jesus chose 12 specifically, and so they wanted to keep the number 12. There were obviously many more disciples and many more people who were valid witnesses. That's why they ended up having to draw lots uh, in, in Acts chapter 1. But Acts 1 
occurs at, at roughly the same point in Luke's second volume as a drawing of lots occurs in Luke's first volume. There, Zechariah was chosen, and we recognize that as God's providence. I think we should recognize it as God's providence when uh, they, they choose the 12th one in Acts as well. Luke calls Paul an apostle only in Acts 14, where he also calls Barnabas an apostle. So if you say, well, they had to wait for Paul, then oh, they have to wait for Barnabas too, and you're going to have 13 or 14, you know, depending on what, on, on what you count. There are two ways of describing apostleship in the New Testament. One is for the 12, and then one is a broader definition. And you, you have like James, the brother of Jesus, called an apostle in Galatians 1.19. You have 1 Corinthians 15, 5-7. Um, Jesus appeared to the 12 and to somebody else and then to all the apostles. You have um, Paul called an apostle. You have Silas and Timothy called apostles, 1 Corinthians 9. Barnabas is, is an apostle. Uh, many of us think that Romans 16, 7, Andronicus and Junia are called apostles. So, I mean, there's also the broader usage as well as the, the narrower usage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And it, it, it seems like... Um... Yeah, a lot of a lot of times that's missed when it's used sort of like the what is the term literally messenger, something along those yeah, lines. It, it can it can mean something like that, a, a delegated or commissioned agent or messenger. Yeah, and it's interesting that James, who who hadn't even believed in the risen or in Christ until he had raised, being his half brother, um, he is referred to as an apostle, but of course he's not not one of the twelve. And, and interestingly enough, he he's the one who's leading the church in Acts fifteen, and not Peter. Um, a lot of a lot of people think it would have been Peter, but you know, he's the one who was leading the church. Well, Peter had to had to get out of town in Acts twelve seventeen since his life was in danger, mm-hmm. and James wasn't as much of a target um, because of the particular constituency that King Agrippa the first was was trying to please. Herod Agrippa the first was trying to please at that point. J- James also appears listed first in Galatians two nine, where. Uh, he's listed alongside Peter and, and John. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think, obviously you've done tons of work in the Gospels, um, you must have a lot of insights that a lot of us don't think about have, not having taken the, I guess, the time and the specific view of, of different details and everything that are going on and working together in the Gospels. Uh, what do you think is something about the Gospels that most of us or, or many people might not know or, or catch? Oh boy, there's so much. Um, let, let, let me let me give you something that actually skeptics don't usually catch, uh, or, or I mean, there's a degree of skepticism, you know, different degrees, but uh, the people who kind of dismiss the Gospels as as historical sources, and that is that the Gospels, the the general consensus today is that the Gospels resemble ancient biographies, and if you study the development of ancient biographies from a few hundred years earlier to a few hundred years later, the apex of historical reliability in ancient biography was in the period of the early empire, from like the um, first century BC to uh, the end of the second century AD or early third century AD. And this especially is true of full-length biographies of characters who came from within living memory. So 
while the eyewitnesses were alive or those who knew the eyewitnesses were alive. So by definition, the first century gospels should all be very good historical sources. I mean, by the standards of the sources available for antiquity, you know, whether you start from a position of Christian faith or not, these are good historical sources. They should tell us a whole lot about Jesus. It's funny, we just had uh, Gary Habermas on, and we were talking about the resurrection, and one of the things we were saying is that basically for for a skeptic or for someone who's denying uh, the validity of the resurrection, you really have to do so on the basis of, of belief and on a rejection of miracles, because there's so much data available uh, with the New Testament in general, but especially with the resurrection, you just, you sort of just have to, <laughs> you can't go off of the historical data like you would with anything else, like history of ancient Rome or, or Greece or, you know, whatever. You, you just have to base it off of belief. Um, now, I did want to ask you, where do you think the idea of the Messiah casting out demons came from? Because it's, it's not in really, I, as far as I'm concerned, in the Old Testament, it doesn't seem like that's something that was going on or clearly prophesied. And it, it seems like in the intertestamental period, they sort of had that expectation. Um, but where do you think that may have derived from? The fact that people had demons that needed to be cast out. <laughs> I mean, in Mark chapter one, it's the demon who provokes it. I mean, he he interrupts Jesus uh, teaching in the synagogue. So, I mean, what's Jesus going to do? Say, uh, uh, I, I need to leave right now. I'll, I mean, he's, he's trying to be discreet about his identity, but he's got to deal with this demon. Shut him up because the demon is telling everybody who he is, uh, letting out. The, the secret out of the bag. So the Old Testament actually doesn't talk much about demons. You, I think it's because God was trying to wean Israel off their uh, polytheistic ideas from their neighbors and the idea of all these other spirits kind of contributed to, to the danger of that polytheism. So God gets them focused on the one true God but you do have mentions of them in a few places, in Leviticus, in the Psalms, and I think in Isaiah, you have some mentions of demons. The term that's used for it, I was like, well, there's nothing in the context that tells us that it means that. Maybe the Hebrew term doesn't mean that. But it was actually one of my students, who now has his, his PhD in Hebrew Bible, who pointed out to me that this word is cognate to word in some other languages, including Akkadian, where it definitely does mean demons. And he persuaded mm-hmm. me because it's like pretty clear in the in the related languages. It's also how the Greek translation of the Old Testament takes it. So it shows us how it was being understood by Jewish people in that time, as well as how later Jewish traditions take it. And it's interesting when Saul has, uh, it doesn't use this word but he, uh, for demon, but he has an evil spirit from the Lord or a bad spirit from the Lord on him. And David playing his harp doesn't really expel the spirit, but it calms Saul. And that may be Mm -hmm. some sort of precedent for a son of David being able to um, expel demons. By, By the time you get to the New Testament period, apparently it was believed that uh, Solomon had that power as a son of David. Mm-hmm. So Josephus in his Antiquities Book 8 talks about 
uh, an exorcist invoking the name of Solomon to do it. But most of the Jewish exorcists that we read about and other, other ancient exorcists, they would have all these ways to get the demon out, you know, stinky root. You have that in the book of Tobit. You have, um, you know, gag the demon out. <laughs> or you could use pain compliance techniques, maybe, or you would invoke a higher spirit to get rid of a lower spirit, whatever. Jesus, it says, cast them out with a word. He mm. just spoke and they had to leave. And in Jesus' name, his followers are authorized to do that as well. Wow. Yeah. And it, it, that is interesting that that's a view that they had held that David and Solomon had that ability. Um, and like you had alluded to, that God sent the evil spirit on Solomon. I think it was First Samuel 16. And of course, David would play the, the, is it pronounced liar? I always feel like I'm saying liar, like uh, every time. This happens every time. Yeah, but it, but it's interesting that they, they did hold that belief. And actually, it's, it's interesting. You may know this, but it uh, when they discovered Psalm 91 among the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was in a jar with four other exorcism psalms that were extra biblical. But it's just interesting that they held this view uh, heading up to the time of the Messiah. And then Jesus is just, like you said, by his own authority, just casting out these demons. And one of my favorites is when he, uh, he the demoniac and, uh, and the garrisons, when Jesus comes up to him like a superhero, like a real life superhero, like no one knows what to do with this guy. And he just casts the demons out of them. And, um, and, I, and I wanted to ask you, why do you think that they, of course, wanted to avoid the abyss, but then they went into the pigs and rushed down and, and drowned? Why do you think, uh, why do you think it was pig specifically and, and, and going to drown? Do you have uh, any insight on that? Well, they were... Uh, pigs were impure, according to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 15, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 14. So I don't think uh, the original Jewish audience of the story would have lamented the demise of the pigs too much. But <laughs> uh, also the pigs were probably used in, in chthonic sacrifices, that is, sacrifices to the dead. It was in the region of the tombs, as, as well as being being used for for pork in in that uh, community in the Decapolis. Now, obviously, their first choice was to stay inside a, a human being and torment him. Mm-hmm. But failing that, if they would be cast out, they'd either have to leave the area, and you know they're getting people sacrificing to to the dead there, so they're getting you know the attention that they want. In that area, they would so they would either have to leave the area, or they would have to go into something inanimate if they couldn't go into the pigs. So they preferred the pigs. Now, do you think demon possession uh, still, I guess, manifests itself today in the same way it would have in New Testament times? And do you think exorcisms are, um, in some cases, genuine? Like, what is your view on that today? Yeah, I I do think I I, I don't see how you could believe that there were demons in the New Testament and think that there aren't any demons now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still, there's still demons in the book of Acts uh, that have right. been cast out. So it, it only makes sense that there would still be demons and that there would still be exorcism, there'd still be deliverance. And in fact, Tertullian, writing in the late second or early third century, says to the emperor, you know, why are you persecuting us? You know, we we do so much good for the empire. Just, you know, I could I could name prominent pagans who 
who would testify that we helped them by casting demons out of out of family members of theirs who were who were demonized. And so, look, if you don't believe in this, just bring any demonized person and bring any any Christian and any, any Christian, Christian can cast out that demon. And if they can't, you just execute that Christian as a fake Christian, mm. which you know today kind of. That might make us a little nervous, but um, and then and then um, Hippolytus, I think, writing around the year two fifteen or so, talks about how it became part of the baptismal ritual because so many so many people had been worshippers of other gods, and so they were they were demonized, and you know they'd slither like snakes out of the baptismal pool if you didn't you know cast the demons out first. So it became part of the baptismal ritual that people would. Um, Say I renounce Satan and all his works before they baptize them. Yeah, that that really is interesting, and um, and it's funny when you look at the even the apostles. It's it's so easy to forget that when demons are are cast out, it's it's in Christ's authority. And there are times where even the apostles it didn't work, and and Jesus says, "Well, that can only work through prayer." And it's like they didn't even think to pray. <laughs> they didn't even think, "God, what can you help me?" <laughs> Um, it, it, and it's so easy, even for my, I do this every day. I just forget, wait a minute, I'm not the one who's who's sovereign and uh, God is the one who I should depend on and who I should ask. Um, now, let me just ask you this. What do you think, what do you think is the weirdest passage in the New Testament? Like the, the most, like the passage that just makes you kind of scratch your head or, or that you sort of, like you mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, it's kind of strange and 1 Peter 3 might come to mind, but one that's just like, huh, that's weird. Yeah. Actually, thanks for mentioning First Peter three, because it doesn't seem weird to me now, but that's because I worked with it for a long time. So the mm. the spirits who are in prison, uh, the the question is who who is it that they're the spirits in prison that that mm. Christ preaches to in First Peter three eighteen or nineteen, <clears throat> and actually in the context it also says that. After Christ suffered, he ascended through the heavens, angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. That's verse 22 of that passage. And I think that those ideas are closely related. <clears throat> Many of the early church fathers thought it was giving a, a second chance preaching to the dead. And many of the reformers saying, no, no, there's no second chance argued that, no, it must be Christ preaching through through Noah in Noah's day to those who are now dead. But I think it makes sense in light of the first century Jewish context, because there was a widespread understanding of Genesis 6. Now, this isn't to say this is how you have to interpret Genesis 6, but the widespread understanding in the first century was that, that the sons of God who went into the daughters of men in Genesis 6, refers to fallen angels. Mm -hmm. and <clears throat> that was big in First Enoch, which is like a couple centuries before the, the New Testament, and just um, widely in, in ancient Jewish literature. So that uh, in First Enoch, Enoch went and preached to the fallen angels, but there he's preaching not salvation, he's preaching judgment. And so the idea may be that Jesus... Uh, as he's exalted through the heavens, is declaring his triumph over these fallen angels, these these mm -hmm. evil evil angels that were 
running most, much of the world. Yeah, well, it's nice to hear you say that because that's actually the view that I that I hold, and it's it's interesting to think not that he's going to uh, to preach like to give them a second opportunity, but that he's he's going to proclaim. And um, I, I love the way Michael Heiser. I'm not going to do his impression, but the way he would put it, where he goes down and he's like, "Hey, fellas, I'm getting up, but you're not," and he and he he's rising back. And do you now? Do you think that uh, the angels being being locked up is the same concept as the abyss in Revelation nine um, with with the transgression of the watchers and, and Genesis 6 and everything? It may be. I think it's the Book of Jubilees, also from the 2nd century BC. <clears throat> Jubilees, maybe first, you know, I think it's Jubilees, but anyway, what, whatever source it was, um, like nine-tenths of the of the fallen angels were locked up, and then just, you know, one-tenth were still running around, creating plenty of havoc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's for sure. They they definitely create plenty of havoc. Uh, well, well, Dr. Craig Keener, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, can you give us some stuff to look forward to, or or do you know when your Mark commentary is expected? Uh, you know the the four volume Max commentary took me about ten years, and so mm. I'm expecting probably I'll be done with Mark within the next couple of years. So it'll it'll take a little while before that one is is out, but. I have commentaries in Matthew, John, of course, Acts. We've talked about uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, First Peter. And we talked about Revelation also. Um, but for ordinary purposes, the the background commentary gives gives background for just the whole the whole thing at a at a more accessible level. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the, the, the time that you put into these commentaries. I wish it was done tomorrow, but that's just not how it works. So thank you for rightly handling that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I bet. Well, thank you for rightly handling the word of truth because we, we really benefit from it. Uh, so thank you for the work you do, and, and thank you for taking the time to join us on The Universe Next Door. It's been awesome. It's, it's been great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nick. Well, thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. Make sure to hit follow and send in your question for our Q&A this upcoming Friday uh, to information at apologetics.org. That's information at apologetics.org. It'll be linked in the description below. So make sure you send that in, and we'll see you Friday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on The Universe Next Door. <laughs>